Venture capitalists have historically been pale, male, and stale. Just last year, only 1.3% of funding in Europe went to founding teams solely led by ethnic minorities. If you think that's bad, a recent report found that between 2009 and 2019, only 0.24% of venture capital in the UK had gone to black entrepreneurs. This is a huge problem. I'm joined with Dr. Chantal Cox, an early stage investor at Octopus Ventures. We talk about how she infiltrated an industry that has historically not been very welcoming to firstly females and especially not welcoming to black females. I think a lot of venture capital funds held a mirror up to themselves and they were like, oh, we didn't realize this had happened. She sheds light on some unique challenges that ethnic minorities face in the business world and emphasizes the importance of finding your superpower, your unique selling point that sets you apart. There is something beautiful about being the only, and we often frame it very negatively. I kind of believe that if I do well at what I'm trying to do, that it's hard to forget me. This conversation is vital. Diversity is the fuel of all innovation. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I begin this episode by asking Chantal to give an overview of what a venture capitalist job is. The most simplistic way is it's a grown-up dragon's den. Um, or Shark Tank for US folk. Um, but more importantly, I think it's spotting, or at least health, specifically health tech VC, are spotting the most innovative founders who are looking to really have an impact at scale in healthcare. Um, and most of the time, like nine times out of 10, they're using technology to do that, which means you've got founders and founding teams who are building companies who are either grounded in technology so it might be they're building software that might like improve something in the value chain or the way care is delivered it might be that they're building a patient facing app or a clinician facing app that helps clinicians to make better decisions or to communicate better with patients it might be that they have created some novel digital therapeutic or digital biomarker which means that you can spot that someone's getting unwell before they do there's so many different ways you can use technology to fundamentally improve healthcare and for me i think what we're seeing more and more now in that space is like realizing that we can't fix all problems in healthcare by essentially adding more people or like increasing the number of doctors or nurses we have to find other ways to improve the way healthcare is delivered and a venture capitalist's job or venture capital investors job is to spot those winners to like try and preempt to work out like what the market wants and what it's going to do and to invest in them up front early on in their journey um, and be on the journey with them as they, they scale and hopefully have a really huge impact on healthcare, both in the UK for us Octopus Ventures, but also across Europe and beyond. And you're specifically at the moment working in early stage of EC, yeah. right? And so I guess with a company in the early infancy stages, there's not really much to go off, right? You're kind of betting on the founders, yeah. the team and the the idea and the vision of that team. Yeah. So would you say VC is more about, I guess, placing your bets into loads of different companies, hoping for that one, like 100x return? Or would you say there's a strategic art about it as well? I'd hope it's a, a bit of both. I think there's a continuum, right? So if you invest very much at pre-seed, where this company or this founders raised like zero money before and you are starting with an idea, then you are somewhat making a strategic bet based on, you know, the specific size of the problem, like how big the market is and why this team are the ones to solve it and, and if there's a path to a billion dollar outcome, right? 
But the further you get through early stage investing, the more data you have, the more proof points. You know, has this company managed to show that it's identified customers who are willing to pay? Do they stick around? So they don't just pay, but they stick around and they shout about it. So they love this business and they keep paying money. And then do you get to a point where they're not just scaling in London or in one small pocket of society, but they're doing it like at large? And the further you get through the venture capital sort of stages, the more, I guess, you're de risking the investment which means ultimately the investor pays more to be an investor and so taking a step back what was your reason and drive for wanting to step into vc i mean i think when you speak to doctors who have had alternative career paths or have decided to develop a portfolio career and the reasons why they left medicine they they usually say they wanted to have more impact and positive difference on patient lives and i think this is admirable and selfless but i've often found that if you do a little bit of deeper digging there's some more deeper personal motives or sometimes selfish motives also so mm. I guess what was yours I think it was a few things um I think the first was recognizing that the NHS is absolutely a national treasure like you only have to see how many people open their front doors on a Thursday at 8 p.m and bang pots and pans and clapped for it during the COVID pandemic right um but it was created in my mind and it's very much an opinion and view of one for a post-war Britain that was incredibly homogenous, that was a much smaller population, where people in many ways did take a lot of their healthcare into their own hands. You know, they still had like a family GP who came to the house, but you'd go and see a pharmacy, you'd try like various potions and lotions with the cough before you went to hospital. We had far less immigration at that point. We ate far less worse food. Like, you know, we were much slimmer as a population. And in many ways, the, the population's changed. Like, it doesn't look like that anymore. And I remember I'd sit in A&E and, you know, the various different patients who came in, various ethnicities and religions and shapes and sizes, and ultimately the ones whose healthcare or outcomes seemed to be the worst were the people who looked like me. For whatever reason, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's, I don't know, genetics, I can't explain any of this stuff, right? But I was sitting there and I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And we are really quite responsive as an organisation. We're doing sick care, not health care. There's got to be something to, to improve this, right? Whether you're a young black male in sickle cell crisis, whether you're as a plasterer all day long and has come in with a cough and it's alcohol dependent, whether you're someone in mental health crisis, those people had opportunities for their care to be better before we met them in A&E. And I, I, I think, frustratingly, I was like... I don't want to see my family in here. And I, right now, based on where I'm working and what I'm doing, I'm not stopping that happening. I'm just waiting for them to turn up and I want to be part of the other side of this. There's a world in which I could have gone and done public health, right? And that would have been one way to solve it. And I, I think that's a very fair challenge for anyone who says it. But there are also lots of other ways to be solving, right? And after like having an opportunity to do consulting, I realised, or for me, there were two big ways that I could really be impactful beyond at the bedside and it was either going and building one of these big health tech businesses you know or enable it like invest in those companies so that they can scale and I actually realized there weren't many clinicians who were VCs at the time and there weren't many women and there weren't many black women so I could be wrong but I think I'm the only black female VC who's a doctor in the UK so I'm like okay if you've got someone who has the right technical background who I back myself to learn if I, what I don't know, but also I look like a good like a good chunk of society who need better healthcare and who should be receiving better healthcare so they get better health outcomes. And like, what better a time than now? And you, you said 
obviously, so part of the reason was stepping into VC is no one looked like you, I guess. I mean, VC is known for traditionally being, um, what's the phrase, white, male and stale, right? And so how was that wanting to branch out and I guess infiltrate an industry that hasn't been very welcoming to firstly women or ethnic minority people? So how was it climbing that uphill battle? In many ways, there's probably like some luck for me, which doesn't sound like the right answer to your question, in that I got into VC in a post-George Floyd era where the venture ecosystem had recognised that it had a problem and that, as you say, it was pale, male and stale. And therefore, I think a lot of venture capital funds realised, they took a look at themselves, they held a mirror up to themselves and they were like, oh, we didn't realise this had happened. So I think I moved into it at a time when there was a recognition that, you know, diverse businesses do better, make more money, like have better outcomes and therefore diverse funds will also have the same. And so the timing for me was perfect because there was a need and I fit the right, like, I fit the, not just the job description, but the, the diversity, not that there's quotas or anything, but I think I ticked that box. Having said that, when you are someone who is in the minority in any industry, I think your work is more than your job description, fortunately or unfortunately. And so in addition to that and being great at the, <laughs> the day job, I think I do also have to be a role model for others that come after me or alongside me. A lot of us do a lot of mentoring, a lot of podcasts, a lot of writing blogs, whatever else. Because, like I said, you can't be what you can't see. And had I not spoken to the likes of June Angelides at Samos VC, like Yvonne Bajella at Local Globe, like Ella Wales Bonner, who's now at Cornerstone, I wouldn't have known that actually there's space for me in this industry. And that's why we have to pay it forward and we keep moving, right? It's not straightforward and I think we're all still navigating it. Um, but I think we'll get there and I think we have to because we will not see the stats improve in terms of the number of pounds that go into non-white male middle-class founders unless the shape and the size and the look of VC funds look different as well. Yeah, I love that. It's almost admirable the fact that you looked at something that has always been a disadvantage in every single avenue and that's the color of your skin and you turned it almost into your unfair advantage your usb yeah. and so if there are any black female doctors or black female medical students who are listening to this what advice would you give them or not even just black just any ethnic minority yeah. person who wants to step into vc doesn't really know how and doesn't want to be disadvantaged by things that have always disadvantaged yeah. them in their life, how can they turn that into their unique selling point? That's such a good question. I've never been asked that. I guess there's like the traditional like auntie type in me that wants to say the baseline is to be the best in the room. Get your grades. <laughs> Make sure your CV's tight. I feel guilty for saying that, but I do think that in many ways the bar is really high. There are, only lim there are a limited number of jobs. And sadly, we live in a world where biases exist. People have mini-me biases. If they're not used to seeing you, you've almost got to be good enough and, like, so I think there's, like, a baseline level of, like, be the best you can be. I think the next thing, though, is recognising that there is something beautiful about being the only, and we often frame it very negatively. Like, I kind of believe that if I do well at what I'm trying to do, that it's hard to forget me. And that's kind of what I want. There's a level of influence that can come with this. And I'm really proud of who I am. I'm proud of being a black female. I'm proud of being an ex-clinician. I'm proud of being a VC. 
I'm proud that I speak about diversity and equity all the time. But to get there, I had to also be like a really solid medical student. I I did interclate. I don't think you have to. I did well at uni. I did well in F1 and F2. I did have presentations and publications and all that rubbish that you're told you have to do all the time. I did all the stuff that everyone else who's trying to be good at stuff did. And then I then I made sure I networked like crazy. And then I made sure I read up all the time. And I was going to like, I was paying for my own courses. And you just have to meet the bar and then surpass it. And that's not fair necessarily, but... If you do do that, like you will stand out and that's great. And this person that you're saying you're proud to be, how has that pushed your career trajectory? Because in my personal experience, I'm from South Asian heritage and my grandparents migrated from India to the UK and they worked incredibly hard to stand on their own two feet to then send my parents to uni. And so I'm proud of that fact, proud of my heritage. And the way I look at it is the way I look at my future is I guess is that I want to do everything in my power to make something of myself out of respect for the hardship that my ancestors went through and so talk to me a little bit about that perspective and how that's been a driver also yeah um I think that's a really valid point and it's one worth raising your story is similar-ish to mine and so many others of us right it's the reason a lot of our families encouraged us to do medicine because it was job security I mean I'm a second generation immigrant raised by a single mum who also worked in the NHS, right? I don't have any inherited wealth or generational wealth, like, at all. Every pound my mum worked for went to making sure that I was, like, looked after, healthy, well-clothed and educated. That's how she spent her money. And I, 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 like you, feel like I can't afford to fail. I wake up every day knowing I can't afford to fail. Like, I don't have anything to fall back on. Um, So I think that motivates me. That's probably where my ambition comes from, my drive comes from, because it's like... Yeah, I work to put food on my own table, but I also work to do my mum proud. I'm sure lots of people feel that like that, though, and that's not just necessarily people from ethnic minority groups, but it does add, like, a whole level of maybe pressure to, to what we do, right? So I think that probably fuels my, like, ambition to not let anyone down, to not let myself down, to not let those who love me down. But what fuels the next stage are probably my future children, It's like, what world do I want them to come into? What healthcare outcomes do I want them to have? Do I want my future daughter to wait seven years for a diagnosis of endometriosis? Do I want my son to come into a world where he has fast diagnosis of his prostate cancer? Absolutely. (laughs) Like, what change can I make that leaves, like, a lasting impact and legacy on the world? And particularly, like, I'm 32, so I'm still really young. But I do think our generation, maybe a bit more visionary about what the world could look like and that's a really exciting place to be versus our parents and it sounds like your parents and grandparents they were surviving like they did that survival so that we could thrive and for me that's where that's what I'm looking now and it's a weird mindset to explain to people who don't haven't ever gone through that yeah but yeah I guess that's how I think of it yeah and just going back to what you said before about how the way the world is is if you are from an ethnic minority you do have to surpass the bar and go a little bit above yeah. and beyond because the, the the fact of the matter is everything is going in the opposite direction against your favor, mm-hmm. right? And so for someone that is looking to, I guess, uh, anyone who is looking to not even just go into VC, but any type of industry and step out and go down the non-traditional path, but they feel disadvantaged and disheartened by the world and the way the world has historically treated them, mm-hmm. what would you say is the best advice to change that mindset? I'd say just work out what your superpower is because you probably have multiple. Yeah, like the odds are stacked against you and that's what the data shows. Equally, crazily enough, 
that data is better than it was. So there is a world in which you have to turn it on its head and see like some of the positives. Also know that there is a whole, there are a whole heap of people who are working so hard to change it. Like they're working. If I think of my time in consulting, I had senior people who were from ethnic minorities who had done the hard yards, but they didn't forget me on their way up. And that's exactly what those of us in the middle are doing now, right? We're like, yeah, we're trying to progress ourselves. Like, yeah, we want to become like principals and partners and sit on our investment committees. And But we also don't, we don't forget. <laughs> we're doing the work. And a good example of that would be like, it's Black History Month right now, right? So there are so many events going on. And I see the same groups of VCs doing the hard yards, like writing blogs, going on panels. And we do that extra, effectively free work all year round. It's just, it gets a lot of like, like PRs are on word, but people notice it in October. Those people, like there's a lot of people who've got your back. It requires you to do some work as well. It's sending out, if you want to network with people, it's being really targeted. I always say this on podcasts about what exactly you want from them. Asking me to have a chat with you to find out what VCs like is, isn't that helpful when you can probably Google it or chat GPT or whatever it. But if you say to me, hey, I just wonder if there are three people you could recommend me reaching out to who are interested in these three things. Yeah, cool. It takes me five minutes and I'll do that. And lots of us will help whenever we can, but it does require some work on, on your side as well. And for those ethnic minority founders, entrepreneurs, what is the data showing at the moment for those trying to raise? Mm. It's not great. I was actually speaking to a operator, a black fintech operator yesterday. And if anything, the data is showing that even less dollars or pounds are going into founders from ethnic minorities um, now than ever. I think there is a, a macro point to be made here in that there's less investment into early stage companies this year because of the macroeconomic climate. But there absolutely is that 100% is a problem. Yesterday, I met a founder who said um, he's building like the B2B software space. And he said that the only investors who, or the only funds who invested in him had someone, he's a black founder, had black allies within the fund to bat the ta- bang the table for him. So whether it was like someone wrote a four page memo for him and sent it to the fund just to say like, this is a business case for why I should invest in this person. And for all the other funds that invested, the deal lead was black. And I don't think there are enough of us to be able to move enough, the amount of money that needs to be moved to level the playing field which means that like allies are going to have to do a lot more work. And his story really struck me, to be honest, because I know I, for one, could not champion every single black founder I meet because they don't always, whether it's fit our fund criteria or they're not always ready for our investment. But if that's the kind of narrative that we hear in the groups externally, then we're in trouble because the weight that the rest of us carry is going to be so much higher. So that does scare me quite a lot. Investing in people, as we said, at early stage is usually intuition, picking the right people. And if you're already not the right person because of the colour of your skin, you're already going to be disadvantaged. Those that are looking to fundraise who haven't had the same opportunities as their white peers, for example, what can an ethnic minority founder do to make themselves seem more investable? It's a big question. I think... The two things that, it's not two things that matter most, but the two levers that often lead to someone getting investment are, actually there's one lever, it's just knowing people, it's network, right? 
And I think there are lots of ways to build your network and some people or some groups of people have that much easier because of either the university they've been to or the business school they've been to or where they've worked before or friends and family and not everyone has that. So the bit that you're solving for as a founder who hasn't come from one of these backgrounds is how do I plug the network gap? The beauty of the world we live in today is like LinkedIn is one of the most underutilized like channels for building a network. You can do so much research on there, you could be on there for days, but it's like mapping out the landscape and understanding like what the different types of ways are that you can raise money because it's not always VC, sometimes it's a bank, sometimes it's crowdfunding, sometimes it's something else. Like so thinking about that one, I think two it's going to all the free events that exist because they do and I know it's hard because you've got day jobs and studying and whatever else, but a lot of this is virtual now. So it's like where, what are the rooms I need to be in? Who are the people I keep seeing in those rooms who keep presenting at these places? Because they're probably the ones who really care about this. The most successful ethnic minority founders I've met, they network like crazy. They're going for coffee three times a day, every day, meeting everyone. And they've got these their own personal like lists that they're, they're tracking and they've got feedback and they're listening, listening, growing, iterating. They're asking each of those people to introduce me to three more people. Like they are, before you know it, everyone's talking about them just because, you know, they've met them. The other thing is like having your story like locked and loaded. When I was in consulting, we called it an elevator pitch, but being able to describe like what it is you're building or what your idea is within like three sentences. So that someone can very quickly grasp, okay, I know what you do. I might not be the right person to be speaking to you, but let me introduce you to three other people who can do that. And Chantal, just as we close up the podcast, would you say that you have built any habits, systems or processes that have helped you get to where you are today? Maybe not systems or processes, but if I look back now on how I got to where I am today I think I what the one word I'd use to describe it is just like hustle if I look way 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 back at my LinkedIn I was like fourth year medical student messaging people on LinkedIn being like hey I'm a fourth year medical student I think I'd be interested in whatever like do you mind grabbing a coffee with me and I'd be like Christmas holidays going and meeting random professors or random whatever and I think there's just that not having an ego and hustling I can't tell you how impressed I am by some of the hustling medical students that I meet. Like, I've most recently an amazing medical student who he literally like tracked me down at some random conference. He then waited for me outside, like <laughs> outside this building, and I was like, "This guy is like this is fair. Like, do you not have like a ward round to be on?" He waited for me. I couldn't actually speak to him for very long. We spoke for ten minutes, and but I was so impressed by just that level of like. No, I really, really want to meet you. He'd heard me on some other podcasts. So we then, I then put in an hour with him. I was like, look, I really don't give you proper time. So we booked in an hour later on. We went for coffee in central London a month later. And now I've just got this urge to help him. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a mini me bias, right? I'm seeing like that was what I was like. And that's not fair. And I'm not saying to every medical student listening to this, like, please come and harass me because that's not what I'm getting at. But there was something about that. I know what I want. I've got these three questions for you. Like, even if it's not you that can speak to me, who should speak to me? Here's what I'm thinking. I just love the engagement and the, the grit, because you need grit. I got a lot of no's. Like when I went to apply for consulting, I didn't get into all the places I wanted to go to. Getting into VC is not easy either. You have to build your backbone. And I just saw that in him and I was like, you know what, fair. Like, I've got a lot of time for you, let's do this. And I'll just carve out time. So it's hustle would be my one not habit, but like, it'd be my recommendation. Amazing. Thanks for having an amazing chat with me, Chantal. No worries. It's been really interesting. And thank you so much for joining me. No worries. And um, it was nice to catch up. 
Thanks for getting to the end of the episode. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes and subscribing on YouTube. It really helps the channel to grow and means the world to me. Until next time and see you soon.